Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 76 of the Simple Life Podcast. I do hope you are having a wonderful week. It is slowly getting brighter, not necessarily warmer, as I warned you last week. We have had our full spring. More fool you, more fool me, because I went out to go try and go camping. I went for a day on the beach, and it was not the warmest at all. i got to remember, I do still live in the northeast of England, and that sun can be deceptive. Do hope you're uh, yeah enjoying your week, whatever you're up to. It is a big one this week. Uh, this week's guest. It is our first sitting MP. Hopefully, after this recording goes out, he will continue to be a sitting MP. But we shall see. Um, so yeah, today's guest is a former indie dance and house DJ and event manager. I did not know that before researching uh, Jeff for this. Um, he is a former city councillor and current MP for Manchester Witherington constituency for the Labour Party. He is also the co-founder of the Labour Campaign for Drug Policy Reform, chair of the all-party uh, all-party parliamentary group on mental health, and the co-chair of the APPG, which is the acronym for that humanist group, as well as the author of the recent Medical Cannabis Access Bill, um, or as the long title is, a bill to make provision about access to cannabis for medical reasons and for connected purposes, which we'll uh, we'll discuss further shortly. But without mm-hmm. further ado, Jeff Smith, folks. Hi, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I'm really glad that we managed to hook this up. Um, as I said, I've been sort of active for a few years, sort of pestering uh, MPs with emails. And um, Roberta Blackman Woods, before she retired in Durham, bless her, had to see me several times during her surgeries to complain about uh, cannabis and drug policy and various other things. Um, but as I was just saying to Jeff, sort of in the warm up there, guys, I think we're going to park medical cannabis for a little bit and have that as the bulk of the conversation at the end. And so I kind of wanted to go through, um, yeah, a lot of the other things that cropped up when I was doing research for this uh, for this guest. Mm-hmm. So, um, I suppose the first question that I was really eager to ask, is it true that you once warmed up for the prodigy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in fact, I think a couple of times. I, I used to DJ um, mainly in clubs and colleges, but I used to do um, some work at festivals as well. So I... Um, DJed in between the bands at festivals and I remember uh, there was one year Prodigy were on at the V Festival and I was sort of the main stage DJ so um, so yeah I played the tunes before the Prodigy game on that evening which is fun Wow! and wow. I think who else, who else on that weekend I think Blur were the other headliners that, that particular year but I used to do it most years I'd do the, the main stage there wow wow I mean it's a uh... Quite a difference, I suppose. I mean, some would argue that uh, live entertainment and and being an MP are are both, I suppose, entertainers, ultimately. Um, But (laughs) I can see kind of a a correlation. Um, But so so were you still DJing when you were a city councillor? Yeah, yeah. I had a kind of double life for a long time. So I was um, a kind of respectable citizen in the day. And then I would go and DJ in, in, like I say, mostly in, in clubs in Manchester or... Um, around sort of the north, so Leeds, Sheffield, Liverpool, uh, and beyond, actually. Um, so yeah, I was I had to kind of double life. It was it was it was fun. I mean, I've always been lucky to work in things that I uh, am interested in. So the big sort of passions in my life are music and politics, and I've been lucky to be able to to earn a living doing both. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, few people get the opportunity to to live one dream, I suppose, but to, yeah, simultaneously get both, um, and they'd be so quite 
opposite ends of the spectrum, really. So a lot of people, I think, would consider them to be polarised. When they think of your cliched sort of typical politician, they are suited and booted and, uh, what's the term, sort of stick up the arse, as it were. But they wouldn't then expect them to be throwing down beats um, on a nightclub after sitting in a, a chambers discussing potholes and right-of-way, you know? Indeed. Although I think that's a good thing about Parliament, actually, is that people think it's full of... Um, sort of lawyers and ex-political advisors and that sort of thing. And there, there are plenty of those people. But the good thing about Parliament is that there are people from all sorts of backgrounds. So there's, you know, social workers, minors, uh, and, and one, DJ. Um, but, you know, there are people from all sorts of walks of life, really. And that, that, that is important and a valuable thing about it, I think. Mm. No, it does give me a, a sort of perspective to take into Parliament that maybe lots of other people don't have, um, which is why I got involved in some of the things... I've been involved in Parliament, sort of supporting the nighttime economy and and things like drug policy as well. No, yeah, I I, I can see the, uh, the the correlations and exactly that is from lived experience. I think that we we advocate and fight hardest, and so mm. having the broadest spectrum uh, brush with which to paint the picture of our society, yeah, just increases the general uh, diversity of the outcome. Mm. Um, yeah, I think we need far more DJs. This is my official call to DJs out there. When you see the nighttime economy is in a little bit of trouble, they're trying to solve it, but it's going to be a little while. So maybe go into politics. <laughs> good, good, good transition uh, career there. Yeah. Um, and I'm so, too old for the DJing as well by now. So now I suppose that answers, ask, answers one of my later questions, which uh, yeah. would would you consider making a comeback? <laughs> no, I think I think the problem is um, when I when I was a DJ, um, you have to and I you know, to do it properly, you have to treat it seriously and do it like a full-time job almost and spend a lot of time kind of going to clubs or looking around for music, searching for new music. And I just don't have the time to do that now. And to be honest, since I got elected to parliament in 2015, I have no idea what's been happening uh, musically, to be honest. So um, I could do you a good retro night, but, but not, uh, I'm not up to speed with things. So uh, I suppose with Partygate, you weren't invited to DJ. No, I've, uh, I wasn't invited to any of the parties in Downing Street. <laughs> hey, it's, it's a shame they've missed a trick there. They've really missed a trick, you know, especially they're talking about, you know, local jobs and stimulating the economy. Got <laughs> one of their own in-house they could have hired right there. Indeed, yeah. Um, for a price, although it'd be a high price for me to DJ a Tory party. Uh, yeah, yeah, very high price. We're not just talking about financial, I guess, here. Um, so it was, I guess, a natural transition from city councillor to MP because we were a city councillor in the constituency yeah. as well. Yeah, I was. So I was a councillor for a long time, for 18 years, actually, and wow. uh, was quite happy doing that and had some sort of, um, I suppose, serious, um, responsible jobs on the council in Manchester. So I was in charge of education and children's services for four years, and then I did a a four-year term um, as uh, the executive member for, for finance, it's called. It's a bit like being the chancellor for, for the city, the Manchester. So I did those two jobs. And so uh, I was, was going to say, so you were in charge of potholes and right away. <laughs> yeah, different. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and, and lots of other things. So, um, so yeah, it does prepare you. So it's a very similar sort of a um, experience. To, to be in an MP. Uh, and yeah, I was um, councillor for one of the local wards in my constituency where that I represent now. So it's an area I grew up in actually and, and know well. Um, so um, yeah, so it's a relatively natural transition. I, knew, I think I knew what to expect going into Parliament, maybe more than some people who, who uh, going from different backgrounds. 
Yeah, I suppose exactly that. You've had nearly two decades of lived experience of the procedural, the mundane aspects of, of governing, of, of ruling. And I think that is politics shouldn't be so sexy and glamorous. I'm bored of this attempts to make it so. I mean, yeah, there are, you can add certain attributes and traits to any individual and people can espouse them and, and, and portray them. But I think then just trying to find sexy politicians to, to deal with, like I said, potholes with education and whatever else, these are not such sexy subjects. We need people that have done the legwork, so like yourself, that have actually then boots on the ground, you know what I mean? It's all well and good coming in with ideas, but if you haven't had then 15 years ago, well, actually, this is what happens when you try and do that. Yeah, um, and it's about striking the balance. But it's also important to go into politics with ambition and wanting to change things and wanting to you know, make, make things better and making your area better as well as the country. So um, it's striking the balance. I suppose the other thing, I suppose, in, about having experience in, in a council or... Um, other political settings, you sort of know how things are done and hopefully that will give you an idea about what levers there are to push to, to pull. And, um, you, you know, you sort of understand how to get things done a little bit better. Mm. Except that politics is a, a moment rather is a strange place. And so it's, uh, it's a, you can, a unique experience going there in itself. I bet, I bet I've uh, protested outside of it many times um, <laughs> with, with cannabis plants in hand and big placards. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, as I said, we'll, we'll sort of get onto that momentarily. Uh, mm-hmm. So one of the things that I was quite interested about was you became an MP and pretty fast you admitted to previous drug consumption and you mm-hmm. quietly championed uh, the legalization of cannabis and the decriminalization of drugs like ecstasy, which is something mm-hmm. you don't often see an MP doing, let alone a lone MP. Um, mm. I, I was going to say, in, in the realm of politics, what kind of drove you to such madness? I, I respect <laughs> it as a citizen, but in that, that realm, that's kind of a no-no. A lot of your peers more than likely have, and frankly, as we're seeing by investigation, still do. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what made you so bold at such a time? Um, it was one of the things I wanted to do going into Parliament, because, as I say, I had a, a, probably a slightly different perspective than some other MPs and different experiences, and you bring those experiences to to your life in Parliament. And quite early, I decided it was one of the issues I wanted to speak up on, because um, mainly because not many people do, for the reasons that you you mentioned. Now, I don't have massive ambitions on being in the cabinet or anything like that, so it's not like I have a, um, a need to be cautious to protect my future career necessarily. So I mean, I want to I want to be involved and do do good things within my party and within Parliament. But um, I also think it's important to to speak up on uh, on issues that other people don't. And I say that, but actually, more and more MPs are starting to discuss this as an as an issue. And um, there are there's always been a handful. Um, I think there's, the handful is is getting slightly bigger each 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 sort of intake of Parliament um, and people who sort of maybe have slightly more liberal views and uh, more experience and are willing to, to at least talk about this as an issue. So that I think is a good thing. Although it's still, as you, as you rightly note, is, is a, a minority. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, unfortunately, of a lot of the, the new uptake, which is, again, something we'll kind of circle back to uh, later on, seem to have... Uh, at least on the surface, vested interests in them making such public statements or allying themselves to such um, grassroots sort of movements. Maybe. 
I mean, I think um, I think some of the new Tory intake are uh, maybe the less small liberal than uh, than some of their, even some of their peers, and so far, far more neo, less liberal. <laughs> and so um, yeah, so um, that's maybe maybe not uh, not encouraging, but um, they're they're in some of those red wall seats that maybe we might win back at some point soon. Good answer. Good answer. Politics, politicians answer. I like it. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask, how many bars are there in Westminster? You say it's a weird place. I heard 12 at one point and I quoted it in the past, but I, I seem to feel um, that's quite high. Well, parliament, the parliamentary state is quite a massive place. And so um, it does have lots of sort of outlets, lots of eating areas, cafeterias, that sort of thing. I think there are sort of two main bars as sorts as, uh, I mean, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time in the bars of Parliament, so I I don't know them all. But there are two that um, uh, are actual like 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 what I suppose you'd call normal bars uh, with pumps and that sort of thing, uh, beer pumps. Um, and then there are sort of other rooms where you can get get a bottle of wine or whatever. Um, I have no idea if I'm being honest with you how many there are. I suspect that figure of twelve might include the sort of dining rooms where you get served wine with your with your food sort of thing. So I, I don't think there's, there's there certainly aren't a dozen bars just waiting to be Yeah, it's not, not like a night crawl. You can't start in one and just work your way through the 12th. No, indeed, no. I think the, the night crawl would be two in, in Parliament. Yeah, saying that we are waiting for, uh, I suppose, the finer details of a Met investigation. So who knows yeah. what's going on? <laughs> who knows? Obviously, uh, yeah, if, if individuals like yourself are not sort of imbibing at work uh, which again that it's the the reason i asked is that i'm i'm just interested in in the correlation of what we're starting to understand about sort of mass alcohol consumption and its effects on things like say empathy on rational thinking mm. um and yeah, so it's it's just uh, I'm was just sort of curious as to as I inform this opinion, and obviously I write a lot of blogs and whatever else. Um, hmm. yeah, I wanted to kind of get it from the, the horse's mouth, as it were. Um, but I suppose you'll be one source amongst many now. So I'm guessing I'm gonna have to find a, an MP that that does enjoy a little bar crawl. <laughs> I think there's there's always been a, a sort of culture in Parliament of of a little bit of drinking. Um, I'm not sure it's any worse now than it always has been. Probably probably perhaps less so. Um, and you know you go down to the bar in the evening. Well, the, 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 there are um, people sort of waiting around for the final vote, kind of thing. We're having a drinks, um, but there's you know there's to be honest, there's always been that. And I don't think most people don't spend their their day in the bar. Um, they sort of retire there after after the the day's um, activities and the votes are finished. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Think tactful answers appreciate that um so one of the things that obviously maybe get a comment on there's been a few investigations over the years uh one of rupert murdoch's favorite rags uh has, has done a couple where they found cocaine uh inside the toilets in parliament uh they recently actually found methamphetamine in one of the home office toilets really um yeah um so i was just wondering about if you had a, a comment on that in general given sort of your previous experience because again it's uh, I know you obviously you're going to have to respond as a sitting MP right now, but obviously you've had the life that you've had. So I was just curious how those two worlds kind of merge into a, a response to this. I'm not sure they do, they particularly. I think it's like any big workplace. I mean, there, there are several uh, thousand people work in Parliament. Um, 
you go to any big workplace, you're going to, uh, and you swab the toilets, it's not going to be unusual necessarily to, to find substances that shouldn't be there. Um, I certainly don't think it's kind of, Parliament is a place that's rife with, with cocaine or, um, or drug taking generally, but I guess, um, you know, the sort of the MPs and peers are only one section of the people who are there. And in that respect, it'd be like, like most other workplaces, there will be, there will be some consumption. I suppose it is best to frame that, I suppose, to rational, rationalise it in that, yeah, the MPs and, and the peers are what, 650 amongst several thousand, there's, as you were saying? Well, the 650 MPs is about 800 peers, actually. It's the, but most of them aren't, well, uh, a lot of them aren't working peers. So um, you can probably say there's like a thousand people on, on, on the estate of legislators, but um, there are little, you know, there are thousands of people who work in the various offices and support uh, services. So, okay, yeah. uh, that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and I suppose actually as well, uh, if you had one individual consuming drugs and use different toilets over different days, you would get residue appearances. Um, so I suppose one one person's uh, rather large indulgence in habit, I suppose, could make it look like several. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask as well, I suppose, is this other, you're involved in a few of the all-party par- all parliamentary groups. Always yeah. struggle to say that. Um, <laughs> one of them is that you're the, uh, is the, the chair of, co-chair, I'm trying to read my notes here, co-chair of the humanistic group. Yeah. I, I, are you a humanist? Or, uh, I am, yeah. And uh, again, when I, when I joined parliament, that was one of the uh, areas that, I think I, I sort of I, I am interested in supporting really I suppose because um, Parliament is um, there's a lot of religion in Parliament <laughs> so we have we say prayers before every session every day. Um, wow. We uh, yeah and if you and if you're not in for prayers I don't go in for prayers because because I don't believe in it. Um, but I uh, if you're going for prayers at the start of the day you get a pick of the seats effectively uh, without going yeah. into court. The details so um so it's kind of not unfair and there's you know there's lots of references glory be to god on on the above the door as you go in sort of thing um and you know lots of lots of my mp colleagues are, are um have faith and and express that in sometimes in debates and um put that sort of opinion forward and i think it's important to have a balance from people like myself who, who don't have any faith and um so it's just one of those things that i thought would be a useful thing to do and these these all party parliamentary groups they i mean they are as they say all party and the idea is that you kind of come together to discuss issues of concern and um take and take action on things that you're interested in uh, without necessarily the kind of adversarial approach that we have in the in the parliamentary chamber so Mm. It's trying to bring people together to discuss these sorts of issues. So there are, you know, there are MPs from all parties. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, um, in in the APPGs, and um, we generally speaking sort of work uh, work together quite effectively and quite amenably, really. Yeah, I, I imagine so because it would uh, sort of division uh, down secular lines. I suppose then often leads to sort of the bipart- uh, bipartisan nature of reality once you believe so much you, you kind of corner yourself off to something and then you, you know, by default create an opposition to somebody else's belief and then you have to create either commonality or um sort of a, a an acceptance and a, a 
of each of the sort of faith. Whereas if you get, I think the humanist approach, I mean, one of the, the first uh, public talks I did about cannabis was to Durham Humanist Society and about 20 of them, they invited us around to a house, sat on a big square and they basically went, pitch, pitch us on cannabis. I was like, all right. And everything I went with, and I, I, I just literally went through everything I'd ever learned. I, and I was just pulling it all off the cuff as much as I could. I brought loads of resources, physical things for them to touch. And the one thing they kept coming back to was evidence, evidence. Mm-hmm. What I learned about humanists is they don't really care at all for belief, for dogma. It is entirely about what can you show. And I think mm-hmm. that it was one of the things I was found interesting is, is sort of your opinion on drugs and then a humanist ideology versus parliament's general attitude towards drugs this it's it's a it's not a bipartisan issue you know all the major parties i mean even the greens they're quite hella liberal compared to most of the others but it's still not quite where a lot of people would want progressive drug policies to be you know that's absolutely right and um our policy our drug policy has not been evidence-based for decades and that's part of the problem um and what, one of the things we do argue for, because I'm, I'm co-chair of the, the all-party group on drug policy reform, and so one of the things, the two, two things we say is we want our drug policy to be focused on harm reduction and evidence-based, and they're the two things. And if we could just get to that position, we'd be, uh, we'd be making a lot of progress. Interesting. I was speaking to um, I had, uh, Dana Larson on recently. He's a Canadian activist, really influential. I don't know if you sort of know him. Um, he opens and runs the Coca Leaf Cafe in Vancouver, the medical mm-hmm. mush- medicinal mushroom dispensary, can- uh, medicinal cannabis dispensary. And yeah. so we were t- talking and we came up with a term. We said we we're bored of hearing evidence, harm reduction, ev- evidence based harm reduction policies. We want evidence based um, benefit maximization policies. Because okay. all of these drugs have benefits. There's a reason we all continue to consume them. It, it helps slightly reframe the argument because, yes, we need harm reduction, but harm reduction comes alongside the maximization of a benefit because to maximize a benefit, you surpass just reducing its harm. You start to sway attention towards and focus towards what it can potentially do, not just for the consumer, for the, for the economy, for the ecology, for the environment. You know, it's when we start mm-hmm. to really scale it up beyond just that individual, they're choosing to do this thing. It's, it's the argument I often have against decriminalization in that, yes, it ends the end consumer being criminalized, but it does nothing for regulation of supply. It actually then yeah, right. most, most often incentivizes and creates really powerful cartels. Yeah. The, no, I agree. I, I agree with that. I, that's an interesting approach. The benefit maximization approach. I, I would say just in terms of political terms, if we want to make a difference in changing policy in Parliament, that wouldn't be the focus, that wouldn't be the, the emphasis I would put on things mm-hmm. because I, I don't think we're quite there yet. I mean, I, I actually agree with you that there are lots of benefits from, from various drugs, but because we've had 50 years of drugs are bad, um, we've got to get to, um, I think the the way to convince people is not to kind of say, oh, there are lots of great things about drugs or it's our right to take drugs. The way to change minds in Parliament, politicians' minds are very cautious, is to say, well, we want to reduce harm and we want to save lives. And that's the sort of, that's the approach I would say. I suppose it's a step-by-step approach, and I think that's the first mm-hmm. step, which is why we've always focused in the in the drug policy groups that I'm in, we've focused really... Um, uh, on on that because I think that's the most realistic way of of making some some change. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. And even uh, Dana said that he was like, look, even in Canada with with 
well, where they were progressively a few years ago, we'll say that much, um, that that would be a very difficult thing for any sitting politician to come out. And he's a, a serial, I can't remember what the term is, for people that run for office knowing they're never going to get in. And mm-hmm. he does it just to kind of get on the ticket. And he's like, yeah. even for me doing that, that would be quite difficult. But again, it was just a, a nice way to, there, there's an ever-growing uh, sector of society that like, no, we're past that. We were there 10 years ago. We're looking mm. at 10 years from now. And the other argument and the fear that I've got is of legalization becoming monopolization and the creation of huge conglomerates that internationally mm. hold more power than the individual territories or regions. So mm. instead of the, instead of honoring legacy markets and the existing cultures, because ultimately I see once the war on drugs is over, it's the same as uh, once we decriminalized homosexuality, we then have to start healing the wounds. You then have to start making allowances for that which has been done. So I've been p- pitching for, God, five years now, the idea of a truth and reconciliation committee to coincide with the, the secession of murder, that we need to review murder because it is not fit for purpose under this guise of basically, yeah, like I said, a truth and reconciliation committee. So you get people out of prisons, you get people from all spectrums, from you get people like Neil Woods, and there's a hell of a lot of people in leap from the UK judiciary that have got some strong opinions about what they have done to thousands of people in this country. Mm-hmm. And then we can start to create again evidence-based, quite humanist policies that mm-hmm. will then, you know, reduce the the harms that have been afflicted on their lives in terms of the mental health consequences. Um, and start to offer them remuneration to rebuild and, you know, revitalize and restart their lives. Mm-hmm. Remuneration is an interesting one. I'm not sure where you quite get it. I, I, I think, as I say, for me, it's a kind of step-by-step thing. And um, Oh, this is like, this is step 25, by the way. Yeah, yeah, let's change some minds first so we get... <laughs> I always like to big dream. This is what's the point of this podcast. It's just me chatting shit for a couple of hours every week. So uh, you're just this week's victim, Jeff. <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. I think we're getting through these questions really well. I've got a couple more, and then we'll dive straight on into uh, to cannabis. Um, so I noticed that you do is it six surgeries a, a month? Is that still well? We we have or, or did I suppose COVID will have changed the way that operates? Yeah, well, we had to stop all that during COVID. Um, and actually, uh, the, so what MPs generally want to do service surgery or want to meet their their constituents and want to try and help out. So um, something I suppose six is a higher higher number than many, but um, that's what we were doing up until COVID. Now, when COVID came, we had to stop them all, uh, and we were just starting to start up again. Uh, actually, um, when when the MP David Amos was murdered at his surgery, so we got some advice just to to not start again just yet. So we're still thinking about how how we um, how we support our constituents now. We will be doing some some advice surgeries. Um, but actually what we've found um, in this changed world is that supporting people via Zoom, for example, is just as easy and very often quicker. Um, so I think we'll see a lot more of that in future for, for MPs. Um, so not so much the, I'll be in this place at one o'clock on Saturday, all come down and, and queue up to see me, but making appointments and, and being able to to support people straight away and just have a, a conversation and then take on their whatever they their, their issue is. So um, the sort of changed world that we all had, uh, you know, we we need to sort of learn from the from the new practices and the benefit and, and and the benefits that we've had from it, and that is one way forward, I think, for MPs. 
Yeah, d- definitely. Uh, especially the question was going to be, and I realised as I was reading that out, obviously that it's not necessarily true, was sort of how to make your local MP and d- direct democracy sort of more accessible. And mm. there's uh, one thing I wanted to throw in that I read recently that keeps blowing my mind every time I think about it. Uh, Zoom and video conferencing during the lockdowns has had more of a benefit towards a positive climate than all of the electric vehicles put together so far. That's an interesting one. Yeah, only that's true. It was, uh, I, come, I read it recently in one of the mainstream, I think it was Forbes or something like that. I'll try and find yeah. the, the source okay. for this. That is interesting. But actually, it has, has made engagement with groups easier. So I do um, now, I do a, um, a Zoom call every couple of months with a uh, with the local friends of the earth. Um, well, actually it's a, a group called the time is now, and it's a, uh, sort of climate change, um, lobby group. And so I do a, a zoom with them. I do zoom calls with, with, um, uh, local residents groups with, uh, local school children. So it's actually made engagement with those sorts of groups a lot easier. So I'm probably, you know, again, we'll, we'll make the, the, make the most of these new ways of working. And, uh, I would never, I would never have been able to do, for example, the, the regular meetings with the, the climate change group that I do uh, do on Zoom. And I suppose it would have, uh, it kind of, it adds to the, the climate change argument. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What you're doing is you're save, saving that money. I made the point during uh, COPS that if just one of the international leaders had made a point of not attending and sent a, a Zoom screen, the, the 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 power of that statement could have made towards, um, you know, actually aligning values with actions on the uh, the global political scene. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because you need to get again. It's about getting a balance, and sometimes it does help to be in the same room as people and mm-hmm. and being having having private conversations off in the corridor and those sorts of things. So that that kind of engagement that you you don't the kind of informal engagement that you wouldn't get with a Zoom call. Um, so it's about making the making the yeah striking the right balance and making the most of those. Mm. Indeed, indeed, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I suppose, and yeah, well, let's delve into the bones of this. Um, I suppose, yeah, we'll start thinking fast. Uh, what is medical cannabis, and is there a difference between it and well, cannabis? Um, well, um, I mean, obviously, medical cannabis is is um, derived from the cannabis plant. Uh, now, obviously, it's not necessarily like like smoking a joint or. Um, uh, taking full plant cannabis because some of the medical cannabis that is used is, is, has very little TAC, for example, mainly CBD and there are different products. What we um, know is that there is great potential in, in using uh, cannabis in its various guises and its various, you know, sort of um, products and balances balanced with THC and CBD uh, for a number of conditions. And so, um, that's why we refer to it as medical cannabis, I guess. Um, and also, I think the fact that um, it is used as a medicine and can be treated as a medicine actually uh, is one another one of those things that helps to change people's perspective of it. Um, and you know, I've got people involved in the the all party group on, on medical cannabis who would never support legalizing recreational cannabis. Mm, I- Respect and appreciate your answer. Um, I'll be gentle with my deconstruction. Um, <laughs> so, 
one of the things that I find obviously frustrating is it's 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 a misnomer. I've worked quite hard with Mike Barnes and the Cannabis Industry Council in the UK, uh, and they recently voted and agreed to change their subgroup uh, from medical cannabis to prescription cannabis, which okay. in English more accurately sort of describes um, the situation. It is the prescription of cannabis, which is the medicinal use of cannabis, which is me- mm. medicinal means medical use of. Whereas hmm. medical medical cannabis is a is a misnomer to people. When they hear it, they then are thinking of it's it's something special, something separate, something different. Um, at the minute, I think there's somewhere in the region of 1,250, uh, 1,500, 1, sorry, to thirteen hundred prescriptions at the minute uh, in the UK on private. There are three on NHS at the minute. Obviously, there were special allowances that were compensations for the very active national campaigns that obviously led towards uh, towards movement on this. Um, we're seeing an issue of juxtaposition between the access three years into this, this change of bill, the, uh, medical so-called medical cannabis access bill of 2018, which signed, uh, came into effect November 1st. So about 13,000 patients versus the 1.4 million people that were speculated. We obviously have a system of something like CanCard, which isn't verified, isn't really backed by anything. We've recently had the home office come out against it. They lost a case in, uh, the Isle of Wight in the judiciary, um, the, um, the, uh, the, sorry, the, I'm mixing up my acronyms here, the GP association, the Royal College of GPs have not backed this, uh, nursing college have backed away from it. So we've got this juxtaposition here. They've sold somewhere in the region, I think 50,000 cards. So of even of that 1.4 million, somewhere of discretion of some we could call air quotes protection is still minute percentage of the total uh, total number of people that consume cannabis in this country for medicinal purposes. Mm-hmm. The issue that a lot of people have in the reform movement in the UK at the minute is that we stood outside of Parliament and supported one of your fellow MPs, uh, Paul Flynn, the late Paul Flynn, rest in peace, um, and his work to get his motion uh, tabled, which is a private member's bill, quite similar to the, the one that you've got um, in Parliament yourself at the minute. His was much more ambiguous, I guess, with the language, because we were promised in conversations with organizations at the time the right to self-identify, that we wouldn't need a third-party specialist to go, cannabis could benefit you. If you had previous experience, historic experience, you could self-identify, and thus you would be able to be considered a medical patient. We were also then promised that conversations would be had around Grow Your Own and around Compassion Clubs. And again, three years in, these haven't really materialized. We have more than a dozen private clinics, as I alluded to at the start of this, some of them tacitly and more, some of them more directly connected to active MPs in, in the house. Um, and so, yeah, basically, I suppose I, I didn't mean to ask that question as a trap, but I kind of wanted to present both of our interpretations so that we can then move forward with the conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a lot wrapped up in what you just said. There was a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I suppose, I suppose I, I try and focus on what we can what we can achieve and what progress we can make. And so, when just as an example to the medical cannabis bill, I I um, had when I was when I was drawn the way the way this works to to get a private members bill, it's a lottery and you put your name in and, and so many people get drawn each each session. Now I got drawn and went, as soon as I decided that I think medical cannabis would be a good way to go forward, I tried to have conversations with the government about what they would accept in terms of um, a bill that would make progress. Now, obviously, they are going to be much more limited in what they they will uh, uh, allow than, than 
the various ambitions that you and campaigners have, but it's it's kind of, you know, one step at a time. How can we make some progress on this? So I had a number of conversations with ministers about what they might agree to in, in terms of a bill. Um, didn't really get anywhere, if I'm being honest, because they, they are... Um, they're very nervous about um, doing anything that isn't approved by the, what you might call the medical establishment. Um, and so uh, I, I couldn't agree anything. So I came up with a, a couple of proposals to go in the medical cannabis field, which would have been, you know, sort of baby steps along the way of, of, of making progress. But I just think um, that's, you, you, we have to focus on what might be achievable. Um, and I, the things I put forward, I thought were not unreasonable asks, but the government uh, wouldn't have them anyway. Um, but yeah, I was trying to trying to focus on uh, um, what to, how we can make a little bit of progress in what is still a relatively um, difficult environment to talk about drugs, which is you know, Parliament is is uh, is not a place where necessarily everybody wants to talk about drug policy. Yeah, ironic given uh, some of the points that we've already made in this conversation. Um, so from my crude understanding of the proposal of your bill, it's effectively to move on from specialists to allow GP prescribing. Yeah, well, yeah, um, but within a, a limited premise. So the two proposals in my bill, one was that we create a commission to look at the evidence for medical cannabis now uh, on, on different conditions. Now, currently, the government... Uh, well, no, the, the MHRA and NICE and the, the, the people who authorise treatments um, very much focus on randomised control trials um, for uh, approval of new product, new, new medicines. And when I speak to some of the experts in the, in the field, so I'm, I'm, I'm no, no expert on psychopharmacology, but when I speak to the experts, they tell me that uh, randomised control trials are are not really appropriate for whole plant cannabis. And so um, we need to look at different ways, other ways of, of building an evidence base that supports mm -hmm. um, using cannabis for a number of conditions. So my bill, the first, the first part of my bill was to create a commission to look at the evidence around the UK and around the world and, and build up an evidence base that isn't just about randomized controlled trials. So looking at the real world evidence um, mm -hmm. and then to make, make recommendations or proposals from that. So that was one half of it. And then the other half was to create a register of GPs trained in um, prescribing cannabis as a medicine. Now, um, they wouldn't be necessarily for um, things like the, um, for conditions like treatment resistant epilepsy, they're quite complex, difficult conditions that you need to be an expert on a consultant in. But there are plenty of conditions that that people come forward with to GPs, for example, chronic pain and things like that, that a GP, that sort of GP conditions and a GP um, would be able to, to, to prescribe uh, a treatment for, and that could include cannabis if, uh, and, and to create a, a sort of database of trained GPs. Now, the government wouldn't allow that either. The government then, um, well, what they, the reason they gave to me was, was they said, well, we don't want um, a load of GPs to be able to prescribe because they'll come under pressure to to, um, to prescribe right. cannabis for, for recreational purposes. And um, which I, you know, I think is a red herring personally, but that's the reason that they gave for not supporting my bill. So they were the two things I wanted to do was create a commission to look at the evidence and get a, a register of trained GPs. 
It's it's interesting because both of those things, I mean, you don't have to comment on this, but I mean, both of those things, in my opinion, uh, will have been shot down because they're against Tory ideology. Us then creating GP access and a service of access for cannabis, the largest glowing, growing global medicine at the time when opioid production is being moved into a very dangerous classification because we're understanding things like fentanyl and now carfentanyl and how they're in, uh, working and worming their way into um, so-called sort of recreational or adult supply drugs. Um, mm -hmm. So that yeah, that's an antithesis of their, their ideology. Oh, no, God, I got a really bad feedback there. Sorry. Um, an antithesis to their kind of ideology there. And then on the other side of this um, is, is that knowledge. That knowledge already exists. Google GW patents and look at all of the cannabinoids for treatments of there's a reason all companies like this, you know, they were recently bought for 5.4 million pounds by jazz pharmaceuticals out of Ireland. Now, a month ago, they announced, what is it? Uh, I think the number I saw was American, so I can't do the math. It was a $100 million facility in Kent. So whatever that calculates out in pounds. So on one hand, they're allowing the proliferation of corporation invested interests like this to do what they do. And obviously, guys, you can go look at the uh, Philip Robson Commission, uh, the Royal Commission that led to the creation of GW and the shelving of his paper into the psychiatric bill, a uh, uh, psychiatric part of the Lancet, uh, very worth looking at in terms of the recommendation for decriminalization and the immediate creation of basically exactly what uh, Jeff is now saying, which is a database to then create prescribing and access for the medical uh, medicinal use of cannabis. And yeah, that, that red herring, it's the same one we're seeing that has created this false binary and polarization in cannabis, which is that CBD good, THC bad, CBD non-psychoactive, THC very psychoactive, when CBD is psychoactive. You ask anybody that actually knows and isn't just selling CBD, the reason we call it non-psychoactive is so it can sit in that little wellness bracket between regulatory systems at the minute. Obviously, vested interest in the CMC and the ACI and other organizations pushed very heavily to now get the FSA involved. There's a lot of acronyms. I'm sorry if you don't know those acronyms, people. Um, and yeah, so we then create all this, this muddled system where doing that would empower the people, would empower the consumer. Whereas the system that seems to be created here in the UK over the past 25 years, if you look at it through the actions of the Home Office, through the actions of the various constabularies, through the actions of various consecutive governments, it's to create private access and enterprise around currently criminalized substances while still criminalizing the people that gave them the evidence and the data for this. The other side of that look at patents is look at the people. There's millions of us consumer every day that can tell you, I used to consume XYZ drug. I used to have this diagnosis. I used to this. I used to that. We have to at some point understand that real world anecdotal data, when it gets to hundreds of thousands of people, maybe should be taken into consideration when making, again, evidence-based rational decisions around drug policy. Yeah, I agree. And that's why that's why I, I call for this commission. I mean, I, I don't deny that, in terms of um, medical products, you know, randomized blind, double blind randomized controlled trials are the gold standard. That um, if you can, if you can achieve that in testing a new product, that's that's great. But if the, that sort of trial is not appropriate for the for the um, uh, in this case the plants that you're using, um, then you need to look at other evidence. Yeah, as you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, the other another sort of. Uh one I wanted to pick up on before that you, you, you said in your 
introduction, I suppose, of what medical cannabis is, again, air quotes, medical cannabis is, and your understanding of this balanced THC CBD. Mm-hmm. So Mike Barnes is someone that I've been quite close to in this for a long time. I invited him down to one of our very first events here in Durham, and we stood in a field and debated about psychosis, at which point after which we both kind of shook hands when that was a really good conversation. Let's go do some more research. And we've mm-hmm. messaged back and forth and had these conversations since. I've had him on twice now on the podcast and asked him, does, does the medical uh, profession, does uh, prescribers of cannabis worry about cannabis psychosis? Do they worry about this skunk psychosis narrative that has been proliferated in the British press for the past 15 years? And ultimately, it doesn't seem to be cropping up. They're not seeing any forms of psychosis inside of, of their, their prescribing. So there's either there's two things that most of us are considering. One is obviously about 75% of Europeans, including UK citizens, mix their cannabis with tobacco. Tobacco, we know to have a casual sort of relationship towards psycho- temporary psychosis and psychosis type events. Mm. Um, and the other side is obviously adulterants within the, the cannabis. So mm-hmm. one of the arguments that a lot of people are putting forward is the only difference between a medical product and a products you can buy on the street should be the stringent steps and regulations that that goes through. Mm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a, a good point. And I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, a, a psychopharmacologist. And I, so I'm not an expert, but I'm um, happy to, well, I know about Mike Barnes pretty well. And he's, he's, a, uh, he's somebody whose judgment I very much trust on this. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, we need to um, we need well, we need to gather the evidence, which is another reason, you know, for for a commission. Yeah, um, I've, I've got an interesting one for you. This because this is actually I'm, I'm a writer for there's a sly plug being in the bottom corner of here, folks, of a Weed World magazine. Uh, I'm a writer for for a few magazines, and I've got sort of a website. And one of the pieces I'm writing at the minute is I'm currently in my friend's spare room. I've been made homeless because I grew grew grew, grew my own cannabis. Past tense now because I'm currently can't, and it was made insecure by a neighbor revealing my situation, and so one of the things I'm looking at is how prohibition affects mental health. So you being obviously then uh, one of the members of the APPG on mental health, there's a lot of correlation between your humanist, your drug policy, and uh, the mental health there. That I think there needs to be some crossover and consideration to because a lot of the patients and people that you're seeking to improve the access to, they're currently growing for themselves. I mean, I wouldn't self-identify as a patient because I think it, I feel it would muddy those waters. I I consume cannabis. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't necessarily want to get involved in that conversation. I'll have that conversation with my doctors and am and do and will continue to do so. But I'm not interested to be prescribing because I don't want a third party professional telling me what to do in the same way I can get a dietitian in, but I'm also free to go to the shop and buy food. I could kill myself on McDonald's in a couple of years by getting diabetes, obesity, and various other um, sort of complications resulting in that, that relationship. And so I think that a lot of those patients and people just want the right to be left alone, to not be criminalized, to, yeah, they want to give that data and information to the doctor to help others that do want the access. Mm. They don't want the fear of then the, the doctor taking it the wrong way. I've, I've heard horror stories in this country over the past few years of the DVLA being contacted and licenses being removed, of, of uh, child services being contacted to have home visits, to check on the safety of children. You know, and this is these are the kind of things that are going to stop people self-reporting and building and informing that that evidence base 
that, I mean, something I'll, I'll slightly note here when I looked at your voting record is that you're quite for data collection. So we need the data collection on this to, to move forward. And that means we have to not criminalize, demonize or ostracize the individuals that are trying to provide that information. Yeah. In my, and go, in my opinion. Yeah. And going back to the, the first bit about mental health and we, we need to, we need to again. We need to understand the evidence. If there, there may there may be some links between high THC consumption and, and psychosis, and you know we need to understand that. Uh, equally, we need to also understand that in terms of treatment for mental health conditions, you know, currently illegal drugs can be helpful. If you look at some of the work that's been done um, with psilocybin, with um, uh, with uh, even MDMA. Um, there are you know, in, in, very, very interesting work going on about um, in particularly um, trauma and traumatic stress um, with, with those uh, those drugs, and we need to we need to understand the benefits, as you said earlier on. But does this not create in some way a form of drug exceptionalism? Because currently, uh, so one of the people I'm, I'm currently hitting to try and. I'm not going to name him actually because I'm, going to try, I'm still trying to nail him down as a guest. Um, but basically in this country right now, so we had a big thing. You're obviously a music lover. You've like enjoyed festivals. I enjoyed Boomtown for seven years in a row. Just just went at it every year. It was like, I love this place. This is a wonderful escapism. Everybody just being kind of hedonistic and free and just enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. There was a big problem with ketamine for a few years. Ketamine, obviously, Class C has now been, I think, up to a Class B. For about six grand, you can get a ketamine infusions. So you can go to a clinic and you can go and get ketamine infused into your veins intravenously, go through it with guided therapy and there are other parts to it. I'm oversimplifying. But then on the other side of that is the person that is being then targeted by the police because they're a little bit slow. They may be wearing dirty clothes in, in an area that's, I don't know, somewhere like Bristol or wherever, you know what I mean? That has a free party culture that has that kind of vibrant culture that are then being targeted. And it creates this, like I said, drug exceptionalism and it reinforces institutional classism, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't think criminalising people for using drugs is, is helps anybody. And I don't think the police spending a lot of time doing that is a good use of their resources um and that's you know that that's one of the reasons we we argue for a, a different approach in parliament to, to, you know, to focus on harm reduction rather than criminalizing people um is there much of a, a cross a cross because it's one of the things that I'm, I'm looking at at the minute is intersectionality between various sort of uh activist groups and organizations and communities do, do Does that occur in, the, in that culture naturally in Westminster? Are there, say, people within policing that are actively having these conversations? Because I know obviously file and rank, you can't speak out of line, as it were. But privately, I've spoken to a lot of police. Some <clears> former heads of police, obviously, I've got podcasts with uh, Arthur Jones. I mean, I had a good working relationship with our previous chief constable. And some of the things he said to me in private, you know, were like, man, you're a human. I see, I see your uniform, and I hear that sometimes. But <clears> hearing them as the person inside of that and i think that the restrictions of the the nature of office sometimes can make it quite difficult to have these conversations but as you alluded to before the conversations that occur in private chambers and and quietly after events and whatever is there this commingling between these various subgroups uh there's not a huge amount of it um i mean the people who tend to come to the to the events we run and come tend to come to our meetings are maybe the people who are interested already and, and making those arguments already. So often, often it's a good voice um, of reason in these issues. The guy called Jason Q is um, um, worth talking to. He, he was running um, 
police, uh, policeman in Thames Valley, but very uh, kind of um, progressive in his in his thinking. And he used to come along to our meetings, so we'd have those conversations uh, with enlightened people within um, law enforcement. But I think um, they tend to be people who who are coming along out of their own interests anyway. So I'm not sure there's that many. If I'm being honest with you. I'm not sure there's that many uh, other conversations with representatives of uh, law enforcement um, going on between. Certainly, I, I'm not party to a lot of them. It's a sh- it's a shame because there's uh, an interesting mechanism that I want to put to you that one of my uh, activist friends always goes on about, and he says that currently, by police enforcing the war on drugs, they are actively harming their pensions because it's creating one of the largest deficits of personal debt in the UK is council tax debt. A lot of people offset council tax. If you consume cannabis, it is a hell of a lot cheaper to cultivate it yourself and keep yourself away from criminalization, keep yourself out of the illicit market, um, and then trade to other friends as a way to then offset other costs. So, but then the, so the enforcement of this then forces people into other petty criminality, forces people into small consumption, so they're having to buy individual deals, which means it requires scale. Again, class, class comes into this, a hell of a lot more money for a lot less product. Whereas before, if they can provide for themselves in one crop, they've got a year. So then once they, they destroy this, you then end up with a, a deficit of people paying council tax because they've got money that needs to go out to other areas if they have a habit, whatever the substance is, uh, not just cannabis here. Um, so then what we're seeing from, I think there's nine forces now out of the 43 in England and Wales that have these um, checkpoint diversion schemes. Obviously, Durham, Big Up Durham, one of the first to, to kick it off. And what they're seeing or the data that's coming back from that that isn't necessarily being highlighted heavily is that a soft touch approach is actually creating liquidity in local markets. So instead of creating a hyper-competitive market for dealers and for consumers, if they allow the people that are safe supply, the people that are not kicking, you know, breaking legs uh, for 10 bags, then inquisitive crime drops. You know, council tax rates, like I said, is going up. So it then offsets ultimately where these 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 monies and um uh divestments into various avenues of, of public service occur hmm. i'm not sure i follow the link to, to police pensions but um i get a, i get a link between uh, wasted resources i guess yeah well, it's just um, it's, like i said in terms of the more the more money in the hands of the people the more that that then is paid into tax the more that then tax is broken down into service service then goes ultimately into uh to pensions okay Yeah, I mean, I think we waste a lot of money, I suppose, um, on on criminalizing people who don't need to be criminalized. Entirely, entirely. Um, So I suppose I've got a few more questions because I'm I'm aware of the time if it's all right to just grab a couple. Yes. So I suppose uh, one of the things I noticed while doing... um, the research for yourself was sort of your, your father's history within trade union movement. Um, and was just, just wondering your thoughts on the creation of a cannabis trade union here in the UK, because there is obviously already several hundred, if not probably a couple of thousand um, different companies and organizations, but there is no real representation for them on a political level. Whereas if they had a trade body movement, they could easily start to rank several, if not dozens of thousands of members that could then, you know, use their voting power to start to lean heavier on um, various political parties. Well, I I think the two different things, you've got trade union, which is about representing the workers in, uh, in a particular sector. And then you've got trade, um, representative bodies. So you might be looking at something like there's this uh, industry council that uh, Mike Barnes is involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certainly 
there are starting to be uh, a number of um, organisations that bring cannabis producers together or cannabis advocates together, um, which is fine. And but I think that's a different thing to sort of trade union trade unionism, if you like, which is about. Um, but, that, but, but that's what I'm saying is that the those companies, yeah, they're getting together themselves hmm. to, to help formulate and create this this nascent industry. Yeah. But th- there's still then thousands of workers that then have no rights because there isn't been a f- blueprint or a framework for these industries to exist yet. So yeah, you can use traditional kind of employee rights and whatever else, but actually the skills and services that are being provided by people in this new sector are far more valuable than they are currently being paid for, and they do not have a voice of body and organization to stand against this if you are a grower you can't really fight against you know the, the body of gw or whoever else because they've got 10 to the, the one of the dozen whatever the expression is sorry uh, people banging their door down of horticulturalists straight out of university dying to grow cannabis um i think again you have to sort of divide split off the the people who are just doing things on their own at home and people who work in their sector for a company mm-hmm. um and it, the people who are in a sector working for a company, you know, I'd say join a union. You don't have to wait and wait for a specific trade union for, for people who work in cannabis, the cannabis industry. There are lots of unions out there who will represent um, people in all kinds of industries. Yeah, good to know. I would, have, I would have assumed that there'd be some form of sort of stigma um, within some of them. Excuse me. I think it depends on, on what the job is. Um, but most, most trade unions are, uh, up for supporting workers in uh, in a variety of sectors. Yeah, true, true. I suppose otherwise it wouldn't be a trade union. Um, what are your thoughts on compassion clubs and sort of social access? Um, because at the minute, as we're saying, there is a real issue with people that are self-identifying that or believe and have previous experience that cannabis will help reduce the symptoms or help treat their condition, but they can't get a verification through the health system. So what are your sort of opinions on the creation? Cause there already are quite a lot of them around the country, these yeah. alt- alternative access models. Yeah. And I understand why people are doing that. And I, um, I, I, while people are unable to get, um, prescriptions on the NHS. It's um, you know I, I think it's a perfectly understandable way of approaching it, and I I don't have a problem with um, people who, who are doing that um, because we need we you know it's partly politicians' fault um, for not so and and the sort of medical establishment sort of are not sorting this problem so people can get the, the access they need. So what's your thoughts then on individual patients, whether they either self-identify or have a prescription, um, growing their own at home? Um, I'm not sure I'd want to get into that because I think um, if you, lots of people do that anyway, don't they, of course. Um, But if you've got a prescription, for example, for a particular um, product with a particular balance, um, you're not necessarily going to get that by growing it at home, just by growing a plant. So if your if your prescription is for epidiolexo, which has a very low THC, for example, um, you're not going to get that by just growing your own plant. So I just think people have to be careful. I suppose is what I'm saying. I mean, I've obviously had quite quite a few guests on recently. Uh... I'll link them in, in the description below for the, the folks at home with uh, Kyle Esplan, actually, just last episode of last week, um, and with uh, who's colloquially known as CBD James. 
And what we're finding from testing of these products that are being provided as the CBPMs uh, here in the UK is that they are varying wildly. So a lot of the floral products and oil products are actually out by several percentage points. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the marketability of them, of them going, oh, we've got 0.4% CBD or, or sorry, 4% CBD. They're finding that it's closer to 0.4% CBD in a lot of these products that they are almost being created to navigate the current legislation to be able to provide profitability for international conglomerates. They're basically making whatever product sells. They are looking internationally at each country, looking at the legislation, figuring out how to, like say, navigate it to create that, the, uh, the maximum maximization of profit from that, that product. And as you were saying before, matching, there's, there's probably a much wider uh, potential capability of people to access through seed catalogs a much wider diversity of profiles of, of cannabis ratios. These days, there's some unbelievable geneticists that have worked obviously from what we colloquially call hemp or low THC industrial strains of cannabis, uh, cultivars of cannabis and being able to create one for ones, being able to create high ratioed CBD um, plants and products. I understand obviously your hesitance of, of commenting on, um, this is a conversation. I just wanted to, I guess, the opportunity to provide you with a, l- a little bit further information there. Um, so uh, I suppose we've got a couple more quick questions. Can you, uh, can you tell us about the Labour campaign for drug policy reform and how mm. how come it ended up almost identically with Crisp and Blunt creating the Conservative <laughs> Drug uh, Policy gr- uh, Reform Group? Well, so so what happened was that myself and another Labour MP called Thangham Debonaires MP in Bristol, um, both have similar. We're both members of the the um, all party group on drug reform, and both felt that there's never really been a um, a place within the Labour Party to talk about drug policy, and we wanted to create just a space. Uh, for people to do that and to come to meetings or to um, have online conversations um, about about how how we address our approach to drug policy, and there's there's never been a space for the, in in the Labour Party for that. So it was very much a kind of an informal thing that in Thangham set up and started to get more and more, more people involved in, and we were supported by um, a charity to to sort of run it. And uh, Thangham's had to step back. I'm having to step back a little bit. Um, but the idea is just to just to do that, just to give people a space to talk about drug policy generally, um, and how uh, and you know what the Labour Party's approach to drug policy should be. And it, it's about changing changing minds in the sort of medium term um, and giving people a space to sort of develop that thinking. So we did that, and ours is very much a kind of informal grouping. So Crispin I, is my co-chair; he's a Tory co-chair of the all-party group on drug policy reform, Chris Pimblin. So he saw me in Thangham um, set up this uh, Labour group and thought, well, that's a good idea. We, the, the Conservatives should have, some, have, have a similar group. And so he set up a thing called the Conservative Party Drug Reform Group Limited, I think it's called. And it's a, it's a slightly different approach that he's got. It's a private company, but um, I think with a similar sort of approach, a similar sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, any space that I guess can be created privately for MPs to discuss these things without fear of ramification from, I guess a lot of it is still this idea of the purse clutching Daily Mail reading the granny that's a little bit like, oh my God, drugs, 
when yeah. paradoxically, actually, her arthritis, you know, her hip pain, you know, the fact she can't sleep, that she's constipated from all her opioids. I could go on for an hour of the ways that it could benefit. You know, it's it's that juxtaposition is so yes. palpable and painful to me as a person that is informed mm-hmm. as I am. Um, I suppose then, what is I guess the, the the likelihood? I mean, I was I'll admit to being a Corbinite. I was I'm northern through and through, so I bleed red. I can't help it. You know, I mean, there's just something in us, in in the water, in 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 our blood, basically as well. So I stepped away from politics for quite a while. I was very disenfranchised and disillusioned by the whole uh, Iraq War. I, I suppose I should mention then um, finding on your record that you kind of voted against an investigation. We'll we'll leave it at that. I'd maybe like to discuss that privately with you. Or I, don't I don't remember whether the title. I think I did. It's. It's on my list of anti. It's on my list of anti. Also, I'll give you some points though. Your anti trident. That's that's some good. That's some good. Um, so, or at least your record shows this. I'm happy to send you the link of my research of this after the fact to check with the record because I would prefer to obviously have this this correct at the time of uh, of it going out. Um, but yes, yeah, so my my point I think before I got confused with that is that. Um, the way I was at the time arguing when when Iraq happened, I was arguing against the Iraq war. Yeah, against I, th- I think it was a 2016 vote for an investigation or somewhere in that, that, that time. I can't remember the details of what was proposed that day, but there may, there may have been a reason why I uh, didn't do the right thing to support at the time. I don't know. Mm. It was only a tie-in because, like I said, it was, it was about yeah. that time that I really got disenfranchised with mainstream politics. Stepped away for quite a while and yeah. um, sort of ended up in activism and all of this stuff anyway. And mm-hmm. then, um, yeah, Corbyn really was 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 a big Corbynite. Not going to lie, you know what I mean. Um, few issues, I guess, over his lifetime and his body of work that I would disagree with, but collectively his integrity and his uh, direction and vision, I think, was something that set a, a fire amongst the youth and amongst the, the the disenfranchised left and and far left in in the UK. Um, we now find ourselves, obviously, with, uh, I'm, I'm not going to sir him, but Kira Starmer. Um, I'm not going to obviously try and trap you into an opinion or anything, but I just want to sort of get your thoughts on where we stand with the, the Labour Party's goals on moving forward with drug policy under Kira Starmer, who given, obviously, his previous employment, but also his, his comments that he's made um, on the record since uh, becoming Labour Party leader. Well, my... Overriding um, purpose as a, as a Labour MP is we need to form a Labour government, and you know we can talk about all sorts of issues, cannabis being one, drug policy being one, uh, all sorts of other issues. But if we're not in government, we can't make a difference to anything. So the the most important thing we do is is get an electable party that can form a government, and then if from from that point, uh, if we can change policy and we have a more progressive drug policy when we're in government, then then fine. But um, my absolute number one aim over the next few years is to get a Labour government. And I think Keir Starmer is the right person to um, to try and lead us into uh, forming a government. Um, and so I, I, I support Keir. I voted for him when he stood as leader. Um, and I want, I want him to be prime minister. And at some point, we will have conversations about policy and other things that we disagree with. But we're all academic unless we can get into government. Indeed, indeed. Um, and yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I would hope to 
I guess, impress on you through this conversation. I'd ideally obviously like to keep this conversation going further forward uh, sort of privately. But I think one of the things I'd like to sort of impress is this, the body of my work that I'm learning through this is the intersectionality of drug policy and cannabis prohibition and the prohibition of current substances and the demonization basically of the most disenfranchised and most marginalized in this country. Mm. It is interconnected with everything. You want to deal with homelessness, you look at drug policy. You want to deal with ecology, look at drug policy. You want to deal with environmental sustainability. Again, look at drug policy, future proof in the NHS, drug policy, look at we really, the needs, in my opinion, to be, yeah, this is good we have these APPG groups, but there almost needs to be an overarching group of just visionaries, people who are not looking to the next electoral cycle, people that are in that house because they want to die in that house because they want to serve the people of this country. I believe that there must be some in there. There's, you've said there's a thousand years, basically. Some years must must be all right. You've already you've you've kind of won my vote privately, personally, in this conversation because I must admit, I respect the way you've 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 come on and you you've you've conducted yourself and you you've had this conversation. There are you'd be surprised there are quite a lot of them that are all right. Most people who go into politics go into it for the right reasons. Who they just want to make a difference to their community or or to the to the country. Even even the Tories, I you know my personal disagreements and political disagreements with the Tories, but lots of them. Not Boris Johnson, but lots of them go into it for the right reasons. I think, and and we we may um, we may disagree about our solutions to the problems that the, the, the country faces, but I don't think they are necessarily um, in it for other reasons than, than wanting to to do the right thing. So it's about having those conversations and those political debates and changing minds. Um, now. It just so happens that drug policy is one of the most difficult areas to do that because we've had 50 years of you know the war on drugs. We need to you know drugs are bad, and it's it's a, it's like turning a, a tanker is turning is turning around that the mindset that that 50 years of propaganda has sort of established. Um, so it's one of the harder things to do in terms of um, creating a, uh, a consensus in parliament. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are there who are prepared to do it and um, um, we'll have those difficult conversations. All right. Well, then in, in that case, I'm, I'm not so begrudged that there are so many bars in Parliament because a few drinks in, I suppose, people get a bit big vision, you know. Oh, we should, we should, we should quit our jobs. We'll open a restaurant. I'm hoping <laughs> that's, that's maybe five or six drinks. I'm hoping two or three is them going, you know what? Maybe we can solve these problems. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. I, I, I do like to believe in... Yeah, really do like to believe that there are I said, elements within these systems and apparatus. I, I started this many years ago with quite a anarchistic, burn it down, we'll live with whatever's left policy. And I kind of attached that and affixed it to everything in my life. And then kind of gone through many revolutions and evolutions and changes, um, mainly a lot of that thanks to the intervention of uh, some of the substances we, we've mentioned on this podcast. Um, but since then, I understand now the need for procedures, for incremental change and for steps. But mm -hmm. I also understand the need for radical revolution in conceptual ideals. Yeah. There needs to be a space for us to be able to have the big picture and there needs to, I need to draw that line in the sand over there for you to draw it here for us to meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. so, so I think anything we can do to to further this this discourse that creates maybe steps away from the, the echo chamber that I think quite often, if nothing else, suffers from a, an intrinsic bit of classism uh, around the discussion of drug policy. Because remember, a, a lot of drug consumers, in fact, the vast majority of demonized, criminalized, vilified 
drug consumers are on the lower economic side of the scale. And I think that needs to be taken into consideration when formulating policing strategy, when formulating benefits, especially at a time with gross inflation in increases and everything else that's occurring on, on the cost of living. So I'm glad that there's individuals like yourself um, fighting for this. And like I said, I'm quite happy to pester you via email from now on. Yeah. Going, hey, hey, Jeff, you've seen this. Check this out. That's fine. Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not the world's greatest expert, so I'm always willing to learn on these things. Nice. Well, I'm more than happy to inform you. I'm not, I'm not the greatest expert, but believe, I have done a hell of a lot of reading over these years and will continue to do so. Good. All right. Brilliant. Um, well, I want to thank you for the, you give me a bit more of the time than was allotted. I've actually got my final question, which is the, okay, last, go on. the, last, it's the last question I ask everybody. Um, what does the future hold for you? And I can already see this is going to be a politician's answer and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <coughs> excuse me. The future for me is, is trying to get a labor government in the next couple of years. Um, I would love to say that in, I'd love to think that in two years' time I might be a minister in the Labour government, but we um, we shall see. Uh, and in terms of drug policy, we just keep bashing away, treat, keep trying to change minds, um, and try and get people to focus on on uh, the evidence and on reality, um, other than uh, other than propaganda. Yep, great answers, great answers. Jeff, it has been, it has been a pleasure. Um, you have slightly, let's say, rekindled my faith in uh, in mainstream politics here in the UK. So I appreciate that. <laughs> that's, that's nice to hear, I guess. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. You too. Enjoy Easter, man. Okay. Peace. Yes. See ya. Bye. Bye. Well, folks, that was Jeff Smith, MP for Witherington in Manchester. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> and if you that scramble of manic notes, that's hence the reason I had to pull them off the wall halfway through because I couldn't read my own handwriting. Um, yeah, I do actually have this as a pros and anti's list uh, for where he voted. I will include the link for this in the description below. Uh, I'm going to remember to also email Jeff this afterwards. Um, but yeah, sort of Jeff Smith MP. He is anti-fracking, which will do the, the things that I personally, I guess, so this is going to show my bias politically, I guess, uh, the things that I would deem him to sort of be an all right fella for. Um, he is anti-fracking, anti all of this ac uh, academies and all of the kind of education reform that's done in the UK that seems to ubiquitously have pissed off the entirety of the teaching profession. Uh, like I said before, during the recording, he's anti-trident and the nuclear option, which I think is always a good uh, stance to take. He is anti-peership. Uh, which I guess he kind of almost intimated as well when he spoke of the uh, the number and scale of them. Um, he's against higher alcohol taxes. So all of my imbibing friends out there, I know there's still people that, that like to enjoy alcohol and uh, will do so as they wish. Um, there you go. He's, he's anti-putting higher taxes on your folks. He was anti the Iraq investigation in 2016. Um, he is pro-nationalization and public ownership, which is something I wanted to ask him and didn't get opportunity, but we'll probably be able to drag him back, I'm sure. I'm sure he enjoyed that. Um, uh, to discuss, yeah, nationalization and public ownership of uh, of cannabis, as I've spoke of many times before here on the podcast, of my dream vision of the NHS becoming the ultimate OG cannabis producers here in the UK. And they would provide all of the cannabis for the adult consumption market, as well as providing all of the products uh, and services um, to the medical industry 
um, to the same grade, to the same criteria, to the same regulations, so that the products are of the highest possible standard. Uh, he is pro-EU, obviously, again, that shows my bias. Uh, he is a pro-welfare state, which is, again, good, pro-disabled access and rights, uh, pro-right to die. Uh, shout out Tom Curran's episode, uh, worth a capture. Uh, capture? worth a listen uh, to capture kind of uh, my thoughts on the Right to Die campaign, a really powerful episode and all respect to Tom, uh, much love brother. Uh, high speed rail, uh, obviously we need infrastructure, but in terms of what they're doing with HS2 and the planned routes to the north, I am air quoting there very aggressively for my audio only listeners there, the so-called north, AKA Birmingham. I love, I love you guys down in Birmingham, but I'm not saying he's, he's not the North. You, you're very firmly the Midlands. Uh, Pro-regulation for helping sort of climate change, pro-immigration, unfortunately pro-mass data collection and mass surveillance, but I think that is generally just a trope of modern um, kind of MPs and their uh, machinations, intentions, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I enjoy the conversation. Um yeah, I don't know. Let me know what you thought in the, the comments below. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with, I believe, drum roll. It is Mila Janssen, uh, Hash Queen, I think. Yeah, I think. If not, be a surprise for you and me. All right. If you enjoyed this one, folks, check us out on patreon.com forward slash the simple life. Uh, check out the simple life.com. Uh, you'll find less kitchen adverts now. I'm slowly working my way through the website. As you can probably tell by watching the body of my work, I'm not very technically minded. I've had to learn to edit all of these. And as you've just observed with last week's episode, sometimes I get the edit wrong. So learning the website is a whole nother kettle of fish. It's taken me some time, but I'm getting there and I'm enjoying the experience. So as Bill Hicks would say, just enjoy the fucking ride, man. Just enjoy the ride. All right, peace and love, folks. Check me out on all social media platforms. Like, share, subscribe, rate, wherever you are on whatever platform. It all helps boost the analytics because currently I use the word cannabis. I use the word drugs. I use very uh, annoying words to the algorithms in the box that mean that they kind of shadow ban me and keep us uh, keep us out the way so you don't see. So if you, also, if you enjoyed this, like I said, share it to someone you love, someone you care about, someone that might enjoy the rambling bullshit that is my podcast. All right, peace and love, folks. It's been a pleasure.